Well, in my house, after Thanksgiving comes the decorations for Christmas, probably in your house as well. Um, and, and I love nativity scenes. In fact, let, let me right now plug our living drive through nativity. Um, a lot of you have, have done this in the past, that you have come out and helped us. Uh, some of you have been shepherds or Marys and Josephs and angels, and some of you have come out and helped to build things. And it would be awesome if this year we can get more people than ever participating. Um, this is not just for those who always have done it. In fact, this is a great time for you, if you're fairly new to the church, to say, you know what, that seems like it would be a pretty good thing to, to serve in, in some capacity with our drive-through living nativity. Um, we got to get Bethlehem set up. we got to get uh, the scrolls up. we got to get the stable stabilized. Um, Animals are needed, animal wranglers are needed, um, but more than anything else, people are needed to fill in the slots. We've got like three or four Marys that we need, uh, uh, two or three Josephs that are needed. We, we, we need angels, we need shepherds, we need an innkeeper, uh, we, we, we need wise men and women. We, we need people who will greet uh, the, the cars as they come in. We need to have people uh, say goodbye to people and invite them back as they leave. I, I love the drive through nativity, and as you leave today, uh, if you go through the center doors and make your right, uh, there is a long line of black tables, and on those tables is a sign-up sheet. And so I would just encourage you, especially if you've never done it before, go ahead and look to see how maybe God can use you to, and stir you to, to serve in some capacity there in, in our nativity scene. Now, as a kid, I, I love nativity scenes. As, as a kid, I would, I would go and rearrange our nativity scene probably every other day just because I, I loved playing with the little pieces. I loved the, the porcelain set with the little uh, lamb that had broken its front leg so that it was always bowing towards the manger. I love that whole idea. Isn't that cool? And I love even how uh, my kiddos decided a couple of years ago to add to our nativity scene. And I, I know I'm running the risk of being a little sacrilegious here today. I, I brought a picture of what that looks like. Now, take a good look at this unique uh, nativity scene. There, there's, there's Luigi to the right of, of the manger and a troll doll in front of him. Uh, let's see. I found Nemo. He's uh, kind of to the left there. there there's an, I love how the angel, they have the angel just kind of lounging there in front of everything. Uh, and uh, there's Donatello, one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, guarding the baby Jesus. And just to the left of Mary, you will see Bowser. Now, Bowser is a character from Mario Brothers, and he is almost uh, dragon-like. And I think that that's kind of important because it brings up a very interesting point to consider as we launch into Advent this year. Advent means preparation of the coming of the Messiah into our world. Now, you might say, well, that nativity is wrong. I would say your nativity is wrong. And you say, really? I say, yeah, because do you have the Magi there with the shepherds? Do you put the Magi and the shepherds together? 
Well, that's wrong. The Magi weren't there at the stable. They came later on. Uh, They visited Jesus when he was a toddler in a house. Um, Do you have an angel there at the stable? That's not part of the the, the Bible story, at least, that there was not an angel there. The angels were outside of Bethlehem talking to the shepherds and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, you've got things wrong. Our our traditional nativity scene isn't necessarily a biblical uh, nativity scene. Uh, but, but the most important thing that I think that they get wrong, most traditional nativity scenes, is they do not have the dragon. They don't have the dragon. Uh, let, let's go to the, the uh, Christmas story. Uh, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. Now some of you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I, you cannot trick me, Trey. I, I know that the, that the Christmas story is only found in Matthew and Luke. And I say, sure, if, if you want the earthly perspective, you can read it uh, about it in Matthew and in Luke. But in Revelation, we actually get the Christmas story from a different perspective, from God's cosmic point of view. So go to Revelation chapter 12 as we look at the Christmas story this morning. Starting in verse 1, it says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Man, what a scene. What a scene. What what amazingly strange characters in this account of the Christmas story. You, you got a, a pregnant woman clothed with the sun, with stars on her head. You, you've got this seven-headed, fiery red dragon. You, you've got this powerful, angelic commander named Michael. These are not your typical characters in your nativity set at home, I'm pretty sure. Now, if, if you've been to church for any number of, of, of years, uh, you, you've heard about Revelation, Okay. Uh, we're actually studying the book of Revelation in Sunday school at 940, if you care to join us each week. Um, but if you know a thing or two about Revelation, you'll know that there's a lot of different interpretations about these wild signs that we see. One thing to note, and again, this is what we've learned in Sunday school, is if John sees something, he, that's what he sees. 
He says, I saw a throne. Well, that, that's an actual throne that he sees. But if he says, I saw something like, or, or he uses the, the, the terminology, there was a great sign that appeared. That word sign means a symbol. And so these are things that are not necessarily exactly what he sees. They're just symbols of something else. So when he says a great and wondrous sign appears in heaven in verse 1 of chapter 12, what he is seeing is not what's real. They're all symbols of something else. Does that make sense? So we've got three characters. We've got a, a, a woman, we've got a child, and we've got a, a, a dragon. And, and I think that it would be good for us to understand what these symbolize before we see what the dragon has to do with Christmas. Now, the first character is a woman. A woman. Well, this is a symbol of Israel. The, the woman about to give birth is a symbol of Israel. Now, why would Israel be symbolized as a woman? Well, because uh, you, you don't have to look very far in the Bible to realize that God uses uh, the, the, um, the allegory of marriage, a man and a woman, as a, as a picture of his relationship with us, that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And so like in the Old Testament, he equated idolatry, running after other gods, as adultery, two-timing him. Because he is supposed to be our one and true God. And so seeing Israel as a woman would make sense. That's how God portrays her in the Old Testament. But also, I think that the imagery goes back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, when God is meeting out the punishments of Adam and Eve for their sin. And, and punishing the snake as well, the serpent, Satan. He, he says to the, sa- uh, to, to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then God states that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now across the board, Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, they will tell you that this is the very first prophecy about the Messiah, who would one day come into this world to defeat the power of evil, to defeat Satan once and for all. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, the woman who is about to give birth, if she is characterizing Israel, then her baby boy is going to be the Messiah that would come from God's people, from the house of David, from the ancestral line of Judah, from the man of faith, Abraham. So that's the woman, and like I said, the, the, the boy about to be born is the Messiah, okay, Jesus. And the description of the Messiah in Revelation 12 is pretty awesome. In verse 5, he's called the one who is to rule all nations with an iron scepter. Now, now that imagery comes actually from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which also is a prophecy about the Messiah. Later on, in chapter 19 of Revelation, John further describes the adult Jesus in the same manner. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. Whoa. And on his head are many crowns. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a pretty amazing sight, if you ask me. 
This is not lowly Jesus, meek and mild at all, is it? No, no, this is, this is amazing, victorious Jesus who has come to put an end to the devil, to bring in God's justice and righteousness. He is the end of the story. But now back to the beginning of the story, we're left with the third character, the dragon. Who is the dragon? Well, John doesn't keep us guessing. He tells us pretty plainly in verse 9, it's that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And like the nativity scene that appeared at my house a couple years ago, there is a dragon figure poised to attack baby Jesus the moment he is born. So Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Merry Christmas. You got yourself a dragon. Well, if you have a dragon, I, I pretty much doubt that it was a silent night. Silent night, yeah, right. Yeah, it might have been peaceful that night, although... Scott and Becca would say, you know what, once Amelia is hungry, um, that, that whole thing of little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Ha, is that correct? Is that true? No, no, not at all. They, they make noise. They, they, they make a, a few noises. So it may not have been totally peaceful that night uh, on earth, but I tell you something, behind the scenes, spiritually speaking, there not all was calm and bright, folks. The heavens were actually shaken as Satan would summon the forces of evil to destroy what God was bringing into the world. So why is he there, this this dragon? Why do I kick off the the Advent season, this Christmas time, with, with a sermon about a dragon at the manger? Well, because though he is typically left out, in nativity scenes, I, I think it's really important to remember him at Christmas time for three reasons. Number one, number one, the dragon reminds us of the person of Christ. Who was this baby in the manger, in that stable so long ago? Who, what was his identity? Who was the person of Christ? I, I tell you this, any kiddo will tell you. Dragons in fairy tales do not show up to kill just anybody, lest just this little poor, poverty-stricken little boy in a a stable. That that does not capture the attention of a dragon. No, no. When, when you summon the powers of darkness in all of their strength, it's only because what has been born is going to be a threat to them. This child will have the power to bring them down. So the little Lord Jesus, laying down his sweet head, will one day be crowned with many crowns. The holy infant, so tender and mild, will one day have eyes of blazing fire. Will have his linen robe dipped in blood. This little babe, the son of Mary, will one day summon fire from heaven and hurl the great dragon into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. So don't let... Don't let the soft skin fool you. This baby's dangerous. The dragon reminds us of the person of Christ. Also reminds us of the power of Christ. You know, since the fall of mankind, Satan has been behind the evil in this world. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Uh, The apostle John would write that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Uh, The Apostle Paul would say that Satan is the God of this age who blinds the world to the truth of Jesus. 
We read in the Bible that this world is under satanic management. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, folks, he came to invade the, the enemy's territory. He came to, to bring fear into the enemy as he invades his territory. In World War II, Allied soldiers who were preparing the bombers for flights over Germany, they would actually, before the bombs got put onto the airplanes, they would actually write special messages on the bombs as a way of expressing their feelings towards the enemy, like this, true, true picture. Happy Easter, Adolf. Okay? I also have found pictures of, in the Gulf War, people doing the same thing on bombs being uh, taken into Afghanistan with, with uh, messages to uh, Saddam or, or, to, or to Osama bin Laden, uh, saying basically the same kind of thing. Like, we are not happy with you, and we are here to destroy you. Now, I, I got this imagery actually from my dad, who preached a similar sermon a long time ago. He, he, he loves to, to, to look at things very creatively. And my father put it like this. Christmas became the mother of all bombs, marked B-O-M-B, which was an acronym meaning beware of Messiah's birth. Just like happy, I, I, think, I think I might have a, a, a slide of that one. I'm not sure. Do, do I or not? Um, I didn't have that. Yeah, there it is. That's what my dad would say. And there would be other messages too like Wonderful Counselor, or Mighty God, or, or Everlasting Father, or Prince of Peace that would strike the darkness that this world is enshrouded in. During Jesus' ministry, it's no wonder that He came to cast out demons, demonstrating authority over Satan's power, declaring that this is no longer His kingdom, but this is now the kingdom of God. And then He commissioned His disciples to go and do the same thing, displaying His power. You see, Jesus came to destroy the work of the enemy. He came to free those who had been oppressed by Satan's power, to set the prisoners free. Those prisoners were the things that gave Satan his power. But those prisoners were released when Jesus went to the cross. Satan lost his power at the resurrection of Christ. And this is the reason that Satan was poised to kill Jesus. And it explains a whole lot more that we read of in the Gospels. For instance, have you ever wondered why Herod the Great would kill all of those babies trying to kill the baby Jesus? Or, or people in Jesus' own hometown would try to throw him off a cliff. Or on a couple of different occasions, he, he was threatened by crowds who wanted to stone him. Or, or on multiple occasions, the Jewish leaders meeting to devise ways of killing him. And his own people deriding him as a poor, uneducated bastard son from the wrong side of the tracks. And perhaps worse of all, Jesus would be denounced as a false prophet a liar, and a demon-possessed blasphemer in league with the enemy. Do you know where all, those, all of those attacks were coming from? Revelation 12 tells us that behind every single one of those attacks was the enemy, Satan himself, the one who will eventually enter into the, the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus into the hands of those who would kill him. Can you imagine what this world would be like if Satan was able to keep Jesus in the tomb? That's why 
I think it's so good to remember the dragon at Christmas time, to have him be in our nativity scenes because he reminds us of the person of Christ. He reminds us of the power of Christ. And finally, he reminds us of the purpose of Christ. Go back and and let's review verses 7 through 11 again. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, and this is the most important part, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. You see, Jesus' birth starts this, this series of events that would lead to a war in heaven. And that war would lead to the eviction of Satan and his minions from ever entering into the presence of God ever again. But that heavenly eviction did not just affect Satan, it also affects us today. You see, the the, the Bible tells us very, very plainly that Satan at one time had access to the throne room of God. Uh, We read in the book of Job, for example, that the angels come to present themselves before God, and there's Satan right along with them presenting himself before God. The night before Jesus would die, Jesus actually tells Peter that Satan has asked permission from God to sift Peter like wheat. Oh, what, what is Satan doing at the throne room of God? What is he doing there in front of, of God there? Well, uh, we get the idea from his name, Satan which is not really just his name. It's actually the description of who he is. Satan means accuser. And there it is. It it says that he accuses the brothers day and night before God. It's, It's like he's our prosecuting attorney. But when Satan was defeated, how was he defeated according to verse 11? Go back and look at verse 11. How was Satan defeated? In what manner, by what means was Satan defeated? By the power of the blood. The blood of the Lamb. They overcame them through the power of the blood of the Lamb. So when was that power realized? It was on the cross. At Calvary, when Jesus died the sacrificial death. There was power in that blood. There's a song that we sing, Would You Be Free from the Burden of Sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you, O evil, a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. See, something amazing happened at the defeat of Satan. We're told in Colossians 2 that at Satan's defeat, Christ at the cross, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities. And he did so by canceling the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. That all happened when he went to the cross. You see, Satan had ammunition. That ammunition was your guilt. He could go before God and accuse you of all the wrongs that you've done. He brings your guilt before the Holy One and says, look at these people. 
They're horrible. They're sinful. They have a sinful nature. But once he was defeated and cast out of heaven, he no longer had access to God's throne. So do you know what that means? He cannot accuse you anymore before God, which means your guilt is gone. Talk about a Christmas present. That's a perfect Christmas present, amen? Well, then let's get the worship team on up here right now because there is only one response that we can have for understanding that we were given the greatest gift when our guilt is gone. That's what Christmas means. That's why it's so important to remember the, the, the dragon at the manger because we, we remember the person of Christ, the power of Christ, and the purpose of Christ. Without the manger, we would have no cross. Without the birth of Jesus, we would not have the life and death of Jesus. And without the death of Jesus, the world would never be made right with God. And without the death of Jesus, there would not be a resurrection of Jesus. And without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no hope. But Christmas reminds us of our greatest present that was ever given to us. And it was the the gift of amazing grace. There was, back in the mid 20th century in England, a a great debate amongst friends, colleagues of Oxford, uh, these great literary minds, genius men, talking about religions. J.R.R. Tolkien was part of this discussion. They they were talking about religions and and what made Christianity so much different from the other religions in in the history of the world. And as they were were there hours debating this, finally, C.S. Lewis of the Chronicles of Narnia fame stepped in. He had been late, and, and he asked, what are you talking about? And they, they told him, we're, we're debating the religions, and what makes Christianity so much different than all the other religions? And C.S. Lewis said, well, that's easy. It's called grace. One word. Silence them all. Grace. That's the difference between us and every other religion in the history of the world. In no other religious texts do we find a God not just showing mercy, There's a lot of gods, a lot of deities out there that can show mercy. In fact, uh, if you have a a Muslim friend, they will tell you that Allah is called the merciful one. So you can get a lot of deities showing mercy. That's great, but not one of them shows grace. Now, what's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve. You you deserved a punishment? Well, you didn't get the punishment. That's mercy. That's wonderful. And we could praise God for his mercy, but God goes a step beyond that at Christmas time. He doesn't just show us mercy, but he shows us grace, which means that he gave us something that we didn't deserve. He gave us hope and eternal life and love, and we did not deserve it. Grace is something totally different because it comes as something that we did not deserve. The Bible is very clear. What we have deserved, the wages of sin, what we have earned because we have succumbed to our sinful nature, is death. But there is good news this Christmas time. Because the devil has been defeated. Guess what? There's a promise in that verse in Romans that comes later. Uh, yes, the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be forgiven of all of our sins We can have a renewed relationship with our Creator. 
with our God. We can live in a brand new life guided by God's Holy Spirit and our eternal destiny can change. That's why the dragon is there at the manger. He knows that if Messiah is born into humanity, then there's going to be a head crushing. So from his point of view, Christmas is the most deadly of all days of the year. And utter terror is struck into the heart of the enemy. Folks, you know, you know what the whole point of the Bible is? It can be summed up in one, one real nice little sentence. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, defeat Satan. Jesus as the hero does that, and then get the girl, the bride of Christ, the church. Redeem people back into God's favor. And that's why the dragon is there trying to cut off uh, the Messiah at the pass. Why? Because he knows the person and the power and the purpose of that little baby in the manger, and he could not afford to let him slip through his clutches because one day he knew he would be de- defeated by this little baby. So, Merry Christmas to us all. The dragon no longer has access to the throne of God. He has no more power over your future. You are a child of the king, the newborn king, the king that has overcome the power of the enemy.